Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, December 31st, 2010. Last Fighting for the Faith of this year. And what we're going to do today, it's not a full episode, it's a sermon review. So it's kind of sort of like Friday Light, and, you know, considering the fact that so many of y'all are already gone you know, heading out to, like, Times Square or your local, yeah, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. (sighs) Made made my adjustments accordingly. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yes, it's important for you to test what people are saying in the name of God. This includes, well, me. Yeah, just because I said something and said, well, the Bible says this, doesn't mean that I may necessarily have the correct understanding of what that passage says. Therefore, you get like extra pirate Christian radio bonus points, which are redeemable for absolutely nothing. But you get extra pirate Christian radio points when you actually sharpen your pencil. Get out your Bible, your study Bible, and and if you know you you get a commentary and you just check to see if what I'm saying is what the Bible really said. This is so the idea here is is that the buck doesn't stop with me. In reality, this is a program that teaches you that the buck, when it comes to your Christian faith, ultimately comes back to you testing what people are saying. Don't be so gullible. My 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 dad, when I was growing up, he'd say, Chris, just because it's in the newspaper doesn't mean it's true. And when I was a young lad, I'd look at him and go, well, if, if, if it's not true, then why is it in the newspaper? <laughs> I I remember having those thoughts. i kind of look at my dad and go, uh, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody write something that isn't true? <laughs> and those of you who understand the problem here are going, yeah, yeah, we get it, Chris. Got it, yeah. Just like you don't believe everything that's written in the newspaper, have you ever noticed that some newspapers seem to have, well, a liberal bias? Have have you noticed that in the the print media at all? I mean, mean, just... If you've ever, if you don't know what I'm saying, you might want to consider, you know, maybe spending a little bit of time reading, like, the New York Times or, you know, 
the Washington Post, you know, th- those particular papers, you know, or the San Francisco Chronicle, or, you know, or, or you know, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, just spend a little, or the Los Angeles Times, just spend a little time reading the print newspaper, and you, you, might, sit, you might come to the conclusion, you know, you might go, hey, wait a minute, there seems to be a little bit of a liberal slant to some of this stuff. <laughs> and you, I go, right on the nose, you've got it. Now, that being the case, when you... Go to church. Believe it or not, there are different types of slants that people take on the Scripture. Okay? There are liberal slants. There are prosperity slants. There are emergent postmodern slants. And uh, and there's even, you know, particular type of conservative type of errors. There's new perspective on Paul slants. Yeah, you, 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 everybody's got a slant, okay? And believe it or not, it's easy to start to detect those slants, and the way you do it, catch this, you read what Christians have written through the millennia, okay? In other words, okay, think of it this way, Clement of Rome, okay? He wrote a long, 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 like 19 centuries ago, okay? And the culture he grew up in, believe it or not, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but watch this. Clement of Rome, he did not grow up in Midwestern America. He did, he wasn't um, influenced by um, the, uh, the in-vogue thinking of New York City or San Francisco or even London or Paris. He wasn't, no, 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 no. He grew up in a completely different culture and a different set of circumstances. And so he had some slants when he approached the scripture, and they're, all, they're pretty easy to catch when you read his writings, when you read his letters that he's written to the churches, or you can read uh, Augustine or Athanasius, or or you can read Luther, you could read Calvin, or you can even read Wesley. You, you, you read different guys from different centuries. You can read Aquinas. Oh, man, Aquinas is interesting. Uh, the idea here is, is that as you're reading different guys in different centuries that, that are all Christian writers, because believe it or not, I know that... This might be groundbreaking for you to realize. Christianity didn't begin on the day that you were baptized. It's true. I know this is hard to believe. In other words, Christianity had been around for a long, long time, and you're kind of like, you're the Johnny-come-lately to the party, if you know what I mean. Me too. And so what you really want to do is be in conversation. Boy, do I hate that phrase because of the way the emergents have misused it. But be conversant with what the Christians, Christians from different centuries, from different cultures, from different experiences have written. And what happens is, is that as C.S. Lewis wrote in the preface to the, uh, I think, 1948 uh, translation of Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, he wrote this great essay entitled "On the Importance of Reading Old Books." Okay, and Lewis kind of makes this this charge, okay? And that is is that just as a fish can't see the water that it's swimming in, in many ways you can't see the the, the cultural water that you're swimming in. Uh, okay? In other words, you know, when you, this con- this century, this culture, this time, this place, there's a particular set of pieces of furniture that make up the mentality of your thinking and that you've been influenced by. And so you might never question, how come we how come the couch is right there? Now, now, you guys out there, some of you guys have wives that don't want furniture moved, and some of you guys have wives that have to move the furniture every three months, okay? Now, 
I don't understand the mentality about the the women who have to move the furniture every three months and rearrange the rooms and, and stuff like that. I don't get it, okay? My mom wasn't like that. My wife isn't like that, okay? But I knew I know women who are like that, okay? Like you go to their house, you know, they invite you over to dinner, and you go to sit down, and if you don't look, you're going to end up on the ground because the couch that was there last week, well, it's moved over into the corner, okay? It's the same thing culturally as far as thinking is concerned. The way it works is this, is that we have different pieces of furniture that make up our cultural thinking and no one and many times you don't stop to ask the question how come the couch is here and the table is there and the lamp is over there and and it, you, no one ever asks the question they've always just been there and no one ever goes well how come it's there and i don't know it's just always been there okay same way okay so what you want to do is you want to read older books and older christians don't read in fact i would i would strongly recommend get out of this century. Get out of the 20th century, okay? Start reading stuff from guys from way back, okay? And you have to read everything with discernment because every human being is sinful and they make errors, but they don't make the same errors. And what happens is as you begin to see how the culture influenced their thinking and their writing and the way they approach Christianity, you that guy in this century, this guy in that century, this guy in the other century, this person in that one, then what happens is, is that that begins to help you to see the cultural lens. It begins to come into focus so that you can see the cultural water that you're swimming in. And as a result of it, you can go, aha, I can see the slants. And it helps take some of the scales off your eyes so that you can better understand what God's Word is saying and learn how to turn off the cultural filter that exists in each and every one of us. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's quite a trick. Now, no one ever really completely fully does that, but... It's one of those things that's an important thing to do. Anyway, that being said, all of that's just intro and monologue, and, you know, it's the last day of 2010. Can you believe that 2010? It's going to be 2011 when I come back to the radio next week. <sighs> oh, how time flies. You know, every time you go around, yeah, I've noticed this. Every single time that I make a circuit around the sun, seems like the next circuit goes a lot faster. I'm fully expecting that if I make it to age 80, you know, fat chance of that happening. But if I do, for whatever reason, make it to age 80, that the that what what for me right now feels like a year, okay, f- from my perspective, from my experience, what feels like the length of a year. I'm sure that between you know by the time I get to 70, if I make it to 80, the time from 70 to 80 will feel like one year does right now for me. I just I'm convinced of it the way things are going. Anyway, I'm off track. (laughs) So today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, what we're doing is I'm going to be reviewing a sermon. Yes, it's... Oh, man. In fact, you know what I should do here is um, I should just uh, go ahead and do this. This is our send-off for the year 2010. I tried to pick a real stinker for you all because, you know... I know you love those bad sermons. <laughs> They're just so much fun. Yeah. So I, I found a, um, a a really interesting sermon from The Verve. Let's um, do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via The Verve in Las Vegas, Nevada. The name, <laughs> this was the Christmas Eve sermon preached by 
Vince Antonucci. The name of the sermon is I Prefer the Baby Jesus. I am not kidding. This <laughs> this sermon begins, begins with a scene from Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby praying to the baby Jesus. And it just goes downhill from there. Yep, if you want to know what's wrong with Christianity today, well, this would be the perfect quintessential example of what is wrong. A Christmas Eve service entitled, I prefer, The Baby Jesus. Talk about culturally messed up. All right, let me kill the music. On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. All right. So with that, I apologize in advance for what may seem to be a very sacrilegious thing, but this is part of the sermon, and I wouldn't want you to, you know, miss out. So uh, without any further ado, here is the sermon from Christmas Eve at Viva La Verve in um, Las Vegas, Nevada. I prefer the baby Jesus. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Hey Zeus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And of course my red hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Your tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Now, keep in mind, this was the opener for the Christmas Eve sermon at The Verve. So I'm not trying to be gratuitous here. This is part of the sermon experience there. Don't even know a word yet. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money. 
that I have accrued over this past season, also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious, mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day, and we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. Amen. There you go. So uh, that's the uh, opening for the sermon, the Christmas Eve sermon at the Verve in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So with that, let's um, here's Vince Antonucci now uh, preaching from this particular <clears throat> text. You know, I realize that there are probably some people who would think that borders on blasphemous, but I- yeah, no, 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 it doesn't border on it. No, no, this is not on the border of blasphemy. This just completely is in the land of blasphemy. It it crossed the border long, long time ago there, Vince. I think it's funny. And, uh, And here's the thing. I think there's something true about it as well, if we're honest. In the in the movie, a little bit later, Will Ferrell says again, his character Ricky Bobby says again, he says, I just prefer the baby Jesus. And I think if we're honest, we all do. I think we all prefer the baby Jesus. I think that's part of the reason why churches are going to be packed tonight and half empty the rest of the year. Because we all prefer the baby Jesus. We'd, oh, man. We'd like to just deal with the baby Jesus. But there are some problems with that. I think there's. Oh, I'm glad that you think there's something wrong with that. Yeah, because. <sighs> there's actually a lot of problems with that. And tonight I just want to talk about two of the reasons I think we prefer the baby Jesus and why that's a problem. And so the first reason I think we prefer the baby Jesus is we prefer the baby Jesus because we sing to babies. But the problem is that this baby, Jesus, he wants to. What? <laughs> oh, man. I, I just know I'm not going to make it through this sermon. I, <laughs> I feel a gasket getting ready to be blown. Um, yeah, okay. Um, no, uh, by the way, I don't particularly prefer to sing to babies. Um, yeah, I can't say that I have that some big, deep, burning desire to sing to babies with inside of me. And, uh, boy, what is that? Do you know anybody that the reason why they prefer the baby Jesus over, you know, like grown-up Jesus or the bearded Jesus is because... They like singing to babies. That's what he said. And unfortunately, he's going to make this point several more times. So hang on. And why that's a problem. And so the first reason I think we prefer the baby Jesus is we prefer the baby Jesus because we sing to babies. But the problem is that this baby, Jesus, he wants to sing, well, to you. We love to sing. Oh, this is such a train wreck. (sighs) See, the reason why we prefer the baby Jesus is because, you know, Shazam, I just love singing to babies. But, you know, but then pastor told me that that's wrong because I I got it all backwards. You see, what was really really supposed to be happening is that Jesus, he's supposed to be singing to me. Well, see, that, that's exactly what, you know, that other guy was saying about, you know, Jesus singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner. I guess that's what he means. 
sing to babies, don't we? Everybody likes to sing to babies. Like, you can have some old crotchety guy, right, who's like one of those, like, but when I was young, but you put his, like, baby grandson in his arms, and he's like, lullaby and good night, go to sleep, little baby. When my son was just a baby, uh, I would sing to him, and I had some, nobody else had it, where I could, like, get him to stop crying or, or fall asleep instantly by singing to him. It was like my voice mesmerized him, and he would just fall asleep in seconds. There was only one problem. There was one song that he always wanted me to sing to him, the ABC song. I I would just start singing, ABC, and he'd fall asleep. But it gets very boring singing the ABC song all the time. So I would try other songs, like like he'd be kind of cranky and have trouble falling asleep, and and so I would try to sing him something else, like Metallica. What? Now, I think he's, I'm hoping that Vince here is just trying to get a laugh line, but check out the lyrics to this Metallica song and how he just rattles them right off. I would be like, dreams of war, dreams of liars, and of dragon's fire, and of things that will bite, sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight, exit, and it never worked for some reason. I'm not sure why. And so he would start crying more, and I'd be like, A, B, C, and he'd fall asleep. We love to sing to babies. There's just something about me. You know why we love to sing to babies? Because they're adorable, right? And you just got to love them. It's a baby. And I think that's the deal with Jesus. We like baby Jesus because he's a baby, and he's adorable, and you just got to love him, and you just want to sing to him because he's just a baby. But the problem is, this baby, Jesus, he wants to sing to you. Uh-oh. Because we don't like being sung to. We like singing to babies. Right? <laughs> we don't like being sung to? Oh, man. Uh, I, I just can't wait to find the biblical passage that says that Jesus wants to sing to me. I'm sure it'll be something out of context. Yeah, but... Hang tight. Put your seatbelt on. It's Talladega Nights here on Christmas Eve at uh, The Verve. We don't like being sung to. The place you see this all the time is at restaurants when uh, the waiter crew comes out and they sing to somebody at the table next to you or across from you. And every time like, they come out of the kitchen, they're like, happy, happy birthday from our friendly gang. Happy birthday. We're so glad you came. And all that stuff. And what happens every time is the person getting sung to gets all flustered and they start hitting the people with them. Why'd you do that to me, right? Because we really don't like being sung to. When my wife and I were just started dating, we went out for my birthday for dinner, and it was uh, it got very comical because three or four different times, the staff all came running out of the kitchen to sing to somebody, and they would come out clapping, and they would go to a table. It just happened over, and it was like birthday night at this restaurant. And so, like, the fourth time they came out, they come running out clapping again, and everybody's like, seriously? And so, just to be funny, I start clapping with them, because I, now we, I know the song. And, and so, I start clapping. Well, and this is a true story. When I went to clap, I hit my drink and brought it with me, and I clapped, and my entire drink went into my lap. And it was at that moment that I realized that they were coming to sing to me. (laughs) So they all arrive at our table singing to me. I'm clapping. I got Coke draining down my legs, and I'm just like, happy birthday, birthday. I'm so glad you came. You know, we like singing to babies because they're adorable, and you just got to love them, but we really don't like being sung to. But the problem is that this baby, Jesus, he wants to sing to you. Why? Well, it's because Jesus is God. 
the, the whole deal with Christmas is that God came down to planet Earth, took on human flesh, and became a person so that he could show us how to live and so that he could... Okay, whoa, 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 slow down here. I want you to... Oh, man, that, that... He steered into something that sounds biblical, but you need to hear his explanation of the gospel because this ain't the biblical gospel. Backing it up just a smidge, we're going to hear about the incarnation. Listen carefully to the reason why Jesus, be, you know, why God became incarnate. Listen. Took on human flesh and became a person so that he could show us how to live and so that he could give his life for us so that we could have life. Jesus was God. So Jesus came to earth to show us how to live. That falls into the category of the law, not the gospel. If so, the reason why he came to listen. You know, so Jesus is up in heaven. You know, he's God and he God the Son. He decides he's going to be incarnate because he's going. Oh man, you guys keep messing up. You just don't get it. I keep telling you, here's how you what you need to do in order to please me, and you keep getting it wrong. So <clears throat> that's it. I'm coming down there. I'm going to show you how to do it. Pay attention. Watch what I do and do what I do because this is how you do it. Was that the reason why Jesus came to earth? Or was the reason why God became incarnate was to go to the cross and die for our sins and rise again on the third day for our justification? That, by the way, is the gospel. That other thing, that's just legalism. That's moralism. Jesus, the supreme example of, of you know, how to do it right to please God. God, and God thinks you are adorable. And God just has to love you. Okay, now I'm getting creeped out. God thinks I'm adorable. <sighs> well, I'll play it just a little bit more before we get into the Bible. Um, See, God is your father. He, he's your dad. And I realize that for some of us, that word doesn't have good connotation. Now we've got a problem. Okay, now we've got, we've got a major, major, major uh, problem. Um. Let me uh, do a quick word search in my Accordance program. Okay, here it is. I want to point something out to you. Okay, let's, if you, in fact, I got that other passage. Okay, two passages I want you to pull up in your Bible, and I want you to follow along. Uh, the first passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And then I want you to keep a finger at uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8. Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, now. If you are a non-Christian and you've walked into Viva La Verbe, and keep this in mind, one of the reasons why they, they do church the way they do there at Viva La Verbe there in Las Vegas is because they're being seeker-sensitive. They're doing church for the unchurched. The whole goal is to be relevant so that you can attract unbelievers to come to church. So we have to assume that since they're a seeker-driven church, that the reason why they're doing all of this is to be attractional to uh, non-believers, so there, there, there are unbelievers, there are non-Christians who are there at the church today, okay? And they are hearing from Vince Antonucci that, well, God is their father. That God just has to love you. He thinks you're just adorable. <laughs> <clears throat> is that true of unbelievers? Is that true of unbelievers? need to show you something here. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1. Talking to the Christians at the churches in Ephesus, at the church in Ephesus, he, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you were dead. You were once dead in trespasses in sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen, did you hear that? The spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Does that sound like everybody is, you know, is they're all children of God? <clears throat> Among whom we all once live, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, in order for the gospel to make sense, in order for it to truly make sense, you really have to first get the bad news. That's really the whole purpose of the law is to explain to you and show you, yeah, you got a problem, okay? You see, unless you understand, unless you get what the problem is and you understand it correctly, you're not going to you're not going to even remotely know that you need a cure, okay? If you seem to think that that, you know, that congestion that you're feeling in your chest all the time and that coughing and wheezing is if you think that it's just bronchitis, when in fact it is actually lung cancer, you know, you can take NyQuil all you want, you can take decongestants all you want, but it's not going to cure your problem. Unless you wake up to the fact that your problem is much deeper than bronchitis, that in reality you're suffering from lung cancer, then you're not going to, well, even remotely know that you need some different kind of treatment than, than you know, decongestants. You understand what I'm saying here? So here's the deal. We have Vince Antonucci beginning to tell us about, oh, yeah, we all prefer the baby Jesus because we like singing to, to babies, which is just an absurd absurd statement on its face. Then turning around and telling everybody there, including the non-believers that have tootled into his church, oh, God just has to love you because you're just so adorable and he just has to love you and he's your father. Mm, Yeah, that's not telling them the truth. You see, the Apostle Paul, even writing to the Christians who are not pagans, to the Believers, those who have repented and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, he writing to them, reminding them of what they were before they were Christians, that they were dead in trespasses and sins, that they were sons of disobedience, and that they were by nature objects of God's wrath. Completely different picture than what the Bible places, isn't it? And if you're not going to tell people the truth, then they're not going to understand the gospel. And how did he say, what's the gospel according to Vince Antonucci? Oh, Jesus came to show us how to live. Yeah, see, that's the problem is is that that's all law. And the law actually is not the gospel. It's the thing that condemns us. Because if Jesus came to show us how to live, when I compare my life to Jesus's life, yeah, I don't know about how you measure up, but I don't seem to stack up so well. Yeah, when I look at my sinfulness and the things that I continually do wrong on a daily basis and then compare them to the life of Christ, I come out looking like a sinner. And the one thing I've learned reading the Bible is is that that sin thing, yeah, God doesn't, he doesn't seem to just wink at it. You know what I'm saying? I, I never once in the Bible do I see God saying, ah, don't worry about it. You know, come on, it's no big deal. Wink, wink, here, here's a butterscotch, you know, it'll make you feel better. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. (laughs) You know, that's not the tack that God takes. 
And so because of the fact that Jesus shows me how to live, and I don't even remotely come close to living my life like Jesus because he was sinless, and yeah, I'm not. You're like not even close. Like not even close today. Like really, really, really far, 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 far away from, yeah, I'm not a very moral guy. Um, so we got a problem here. Um, when I stack up my life against Jesus, you know, and I co- compared to some of my neighbors, <laughs> you know, it's really easy to make myself look like I'm a pretty decent guy because all I got to do, this is really simple. In fact, we if you haven't done this, try it sometime. It'll make you really feel good about yourself, but it's a form of self-deception, so be careful with it. But if you really want to make yourself feel like you're a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl, what you know, find, you know, you, you know the, the people in your neighborhood, okay? You know the family that lives in that house where, you know, they are all always screwed up. You know what I'm talking about? You know, maybe maybe one of the parents struggles with alcoholism. They you know, they never seem to get their act together. Their kids are poorly behaved and and you know, when you compare yourself to them, you sure do look good, don't you? Yeah, the the, the problem is this. Um <clears throat> they're not the standard. Yeah, no. God doesn't grade on the curve. The standard is Jesus. Uh, this, you know, see, Jesus lived the Mosaic Law perfectly, sinlessly. So the, it's not how well do you stack up to, like, you know, your most obviously struggling and broken neighbors. No, the question is how do you stack up against Jesus? How, you know, how do you stack up against the Ten Commandments? Now let's talk about how, how, how well you do them there. I bet you stink at it. You know why? Because you're a sinner. Just like me, I stink at it too. God's law condemns me. When I look at Jesus' life as if it was an example that I'm supposed to follow, oy vey, I end up thinking uh, I've, I haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades of making it through the judgment if uh, if God doesn't give me grace because, yeah, I, I don't live my life like Jesus's at all. Barely, ever. It really is bad. I have to daily confess my sins and repent and be forgiven. Daily, sometimes minute by minute. How about you? So, yeah, so here's the deal. The Bible tells us that by nature we are objects of God's wrath and the sons of disobedience. Now, I told you I wanted you to flip on over and keep your finger at John chapter 8. And I want to show you something <clears throat> here in um, in chapter 8, if you would. And if you have it, uh, let's see here. Where do I want to start this? This is a fun little exchange that Jesus has with the religious leaders in Israel. Now, these aren't your your sinful schlubs. Okay, this is not Jesus arguing with um, you know, the fair, uh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and and the malcontents and the zealots. N- no, <laughs> this is a conversation that Jesus is having with religious Jews, and boy, these folks are righteous. <laughs> yeah, you see. To a Pharisee, okay, remember what, that metaphor I was saying, you know, if you want to make yourself feel better, you know, you look for the sinful person in your neighborhood and just compare yourself to them, you know, the people who obviously don't have their act together, and you say, boy, I feel great compared to them. You see, here's the deal. With the Pharisees, they would actually look at you and say, yeah, at least I'm not like that person. <laughs> yeah, so if you think you're good, then, see, the Pharisee would see all the sinfulness and evilness in your life and look at you and make themselves feel better because you would be the thing by which they would compare themselves to and then feel like that they're so much better. Yeah. So that, that that's who Jesus is talking to in this little passage here. Um so uh G, let's see here. Um we'll, we'll start at verse 34. Mm, no, you know what? Let's start at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples." 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, um, We are offspring of Abraham, and, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus said to them, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be, you will be free indeed. Notice that Jesus is saying that they're sinners and that they need to be set free. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, well, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, that your father did. So they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Well, Jesus said to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Did you catch that? Jesus said to these religious Jews, You are of your father, the devil. Yeah, how does that jive with what Vince Antonucci is telling everybody here that, oh, you're just, uh, God just loves you so much. Oh, he just wants to pinch your little cheeks because you're so adorable and he's your daddy. Really? You're going to say that to somebody who isn't a believer? Hmm. I think we've got a problem, don't you? Sorry, and you're like, I don't need another one of those. I got a bad one already. But he's not that kind of dad. God is a perfect, loving father. And he thinks you're adorable because you're his kid. You're his baby. And so... Um, Remember what I just read? Jesus speaking to the religious Jews. You are of your father, the devil. We are by nature dead in trespasses and sins, objects of God's wrath. Vince, you're not telling these people the truth, especially if they're not Christians. But he loves you and he just has to sing to you. Unless you think that I'm making this up and, and, and kind of getting carried away, let me show you in the Bible where it says that God wants to sing to you and sings to you. So. 
Okay, now what he's going to read here, I want you to, and we're going to put it back in context. Just ask yourself the question Does this verse prove that God just thinks that we're so adorable that he just has to pinch our cheeks and wants to sing to us because we're all his children? Okay, remember, clear passages of Scripture always govern unclear. I've just given you two clear passages of Scripture that make it perfectly clear that. By nature, man is sinful, dead, and trespasses and sins. By nature, an object of God's wrath. And we are, by well, by nature, because of our fallen nature, children of the devil. Not the Father. The devil. Let's see if this verse can undo all of that. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, but I will so put it on the screen so you don't have to. You can just look at me because I'm looking good tonight, aren't I? Yes. Uh, I'm actually feeling a little sick, but I'm still looking good. So uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, listen to what it says. It says, the Lord your God is with you. That's good news. He is mighty to save. Now here's the question. Who is the Lord addressing in this passage of Zephaniah? Is this a verse that applies to all of humanity? Or was God speaking to Israel? It's important because notice what he's doing. He's taking this verse, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, and he's making it into a universal application. Is that what is supposed to be going on here? Well, we're going to read it in context in a second, but let's just listen. That's good. Listen to this. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This verse says that God wants to sing to you, that God... Yeah. Um, okay, now let's put this back in context. Have your Bible flip on over to Zephaniah chapter 3. Okay. And what I'm going to do is, um, well, let's put this into <clears throat> context. We'll, so we'll look at the immediate context. If you want to get the full context, read all of the book of Zephaniah. It's not a very long book. It's one of the minor prophets, and you can read it in, in, in a fairly short amount of time. That being said, let's put it in context. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who was rebellious and defiled. The oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing until morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. 
For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now, I'm reading from Zephaniah chapter 3. Does this sound anything like the, oh, you're my little children, I just want to sing to you, oh, little kind of God that uh, Vince Antonucci is describing? For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people that are humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, and they shall speak no lies." Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Sing, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, when did God take away our enemies and our judgments against us? Answer, on the cross. And notice here, this isn't a universal application to all of mankind. This is to those who are of Israel, those who are repentant, those who are covered by the blood of Christ, who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, who is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame to praise and the renown and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before the eyes, says the Lord. Boy, when you put that verse back into context, now you're really learning what the Bible preaches. Now you're really hearing what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that all of us, oh, we're just all the apples of God's eye. (laughs) No. The ones whom God has humbled through the preaching of his law and the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross, those who have been humbled, and made low, God will lift their head, 
And on that day, he will turn their reproach in the nations to exaltation. The humble, the lowly, the repentant, the penitent, the forgiven. That's who God sings over in this passage. Not everybody. Let's continue. God does. He sings over you. It's like God could be up in heaven having the worst day, like everything's gone wrong today, but then he thinks of you, and because you're his kid, he just bursts in a song. He's like, why must the world be made of silly love songs? But what's wrong with that? I'd like to know, so here I go again. I love, and he points at you, you, right? It's creepy. It says God sings over you. Why? The verse tells us he takes great delight in you. And you're his kid. No, when you read the passage in context, you realize it's not to everybody that God is singing over. It's to the repentant and humble, the forgiven. You see the difference? Read it in context, and all of a sudden, all of these claims that he's making that this verse supposedly teaches, none of them pan out to be true. In other words, well, Vince Antonucci here in this blasphemous Christmas Eve sermon... He's not speaking the truth to you. Now, I don't know if he's purposely and maliciously lying to you. I doubt that's the case. I I can't see into his heart to see whether or not he's purposely deceiving. But one thing is certain is that he is deceiving, and it's more than likely the reason for it is because he hasn't done his job. And that is his job is to be in the scriptures, studying the scriptures, so that when he brings forth the word of God, he's bringing forth the very oracles of God and teaching people correctly what the word says. Instead, he's basically used the Bible in kind of a cut and paste kind of way, ripped a passage out of context, and now is editorializing on that out of context verse, and his editorializations They aren't actually what the passage teaches at all when you read it in context. That's why context, context, context are the three keys to properly understanding God's Word, and I refer to them regularly here during our sermon reviews at Fighting for the Faith. Let's continue. To him, you are adorable, and he just has to love you. Now, I realize that for some of us, that's almost impossible to believe. Right? But that, well, that's not what the Bible teaches, so what you're saying is wrong. That doesn't mean it's not true. And it's really good news. It's good news because we want that, don't we? We want that. We want to be adored. We no, wa- notice here, the good news is now completely doesn't make any sense because the wrath of God has been completely blunted. He's not telling you the whole truth. And as a result of it, what suffers? The gospel. His proclamation of the gospel isn't true want to be loved. It's just so hard for some of us to believe because we know ourselves, right? You know you. You know how messed up you really are. You might be able to put on a show for everybody else, but you know you. You know the things you've done. You know where you've been. Right? You know how ugly you are on the inside. You know the things that, the thoughts you have, the, the things that go through your mind that nobody else knows. And, and you have- Now, why is that bad? All this ugliness. Is, is it just that we're talking ourselves down? Notice the, a true and correct biblical explanation of sin is completely missing here. Well, you know the things you've done, so maybe you just don't feel worthy enough. And you know what? You aren't worthy. You are a sinner. 
You have to assume, well, God knows all that. And so there's no way a God like that could love a person like me. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are his kid. And he adores you. He just has to. No, the Bible teaches those who trust in him are his adopted children. You're not teaching them the truth, Vince. He has to love you, and he wants to sing to you. And that is good news, because we want that. We want so badly to be adored, to be loved. I mean, you look at our lives. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're going through life trying to get people to be impressed with us, to like us, to adore us, to love us. And so half the things we do, there's no other explanation for Right? We do everything we can to impress people at work. We, we do things we would never want to do to get some guy or some girl to love us. Why? Because we just want to be adored. We just want to be loved. There's something inside of, of us that was built for that, that was designed to be adored and loved, and it's put in you by God. And he adores you and loves you and wants to sing to you. It's not enough to tell people that God loves them. You also have to tell them that God is going to judge them. You need to warn them to flee from the wrath of God because of their sins. It's right there in Zephaniah chapter 3, the so far the only verse that has made an appearance in this, quote, sermon. <sighs> and so it may be hard to believe, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And it's really really good news. And so I personally believe this is the most important truth you will ever hear in your life. And so I pray that you'll, you'll hear this and that you'll accept it. Or, or maybe tonight you'll just begin to, to, to accept it. But listen to this. God loves you just the way you are. He knows. He knows what you... Okay, question. If God loves me just the way I am, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because the scripture says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That Christ shed blood on the cross propitiates God's wrath. If God loves me just the way I am, then why did Jesus die on the cross? You see, this whole sermon from beginning to end is deficient. It's deficient in God's word. It begins with a, a blasphemous movie uh, segment. It's devoid of a clear exposition of God's word. It's as a result of it that what's missing is a correct understanding of sin, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, judgment, and God's wrath. And now you don't un- you don't properly understand what the gospel is either. Oh, you you have good news to tell me that God loves me. Oh, well, that's great. Wow, I I love me too. Yeah, I'm glad that God loves me because I love myself. Wow, this is an easy religion. Wow. You see, what's missing? Repentance, sin, God's wrath, the judgment. All of that is gone. Instead, we've got this old senile grandfather God who just wants to sing to you. Oh, he's so cute and cuddly, too. I, I love it when he, you know, his dentures fall out of his mouth. You've done. He knows who you are. He knows where you've been. But God loves you just the way you are. Okay, so we have a problem. We prefer the baby Jesus, right? And there's some problems with that. One problem is we like to sing to babies, but this baby wants to sing to us, and we need to accept God's love into our life. It's hard for us, but we need to. The second problem is this. I think we prefer the baby Jesus because we change babies. 
But the problem is that this baby wants to change you. Notice the play on words. Apparently, we love the baby Jesus because we love to change babies. Yeah, no. I had three kids. Okay, I have them. Now, thankfully, they're all, well, one of them, two of them are grown up. Can you believe that? Ah, You know, I told them not to do that to me because it would make me feel old. Well, now I feel old because, you know, I've got a married son. I got a daughter who's almost 20 years old, and even my youngest is a teenager. Ah. Anyway, okay, so I'm sorry. I just completely bunny trailed myself there. It's just the thought of it just gives me the shakes. Anyway, here's the deal. I remember when my kids were babies, and I remember when they were infants. And I got to tell you, with each and every child, one of the happiest days of my parenting life was the day when my wife announced, your son or your daughter is potty trained. Yeah, because no, I did not enjoy changing diapers at all. So this point doesn't even make any sense. Now, if you like changing diapers... Don't email me. I don't want to hear it because I don't want to believe that there's somebody out there in the world that really, really, really enjoys it. Because every time it was my time to change diapers, especially when it was the poopy kind, it was an ordeal. I just, I, it was something that I, you know, I've found a scientific way to get it done quickly and to it not experience very much smell. Okay, this, let's put it that way. I had a technique. I had a way to do it. And if uh, if things took too long, then I could have potentially passed out. But that's a different story. Anyway, so this the second point doesn't make any sense either. So the reason why we love the baby Jesus is because we love to change babies. But God wants to change you. Now, he's in the second part of this, God wants to change you. He's talking about God changing your life, not changing your diaper. So already the second point is like, creeping me out because if you don't track with them correctly, you're going to think God wants to change your diapers. And that's almost worse than this idea that Jesus is my bearded girlfriend. The last thing I want to picture God as or Jesus as is the guy who wants to change my diapers. You understand what I'm saying here? This is just not a good mental picture. Now, we are are off in the crazy spot here. Anyway, uh, I want to point something out to you before I get back to the sermon. Okay, let me read to you Romans chapter 5, because I asked the question earlier, if God loves me just the way I am, then why did Christ die on the cross for my sins? There's a passage of scripture that talks about God's love for us, and it doesn't say, well, God just loves you anyway. God just loves you the way you are. It's Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to begin at verse 1, okay? Talking to Christians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous, by faith. We're not declared righteous before God by our works, our law-keeping, our good works, or our sanctification. No, 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 no. We are declared righteous before God by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we now have been declared righteous, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, what I just read for you is a very nice, tidy, biblical summary of the gospel itself. Christ died for our sins. God shows his love for us. Even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God does love us, and that love is not some abstract love. That love is a concrete love demonstrated by the shed blood of Christ for our sins that saves us from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. The wrath of God. So notice, apparently Vince Antonucci's God is, well, kind of wrathless. Vince Antonucci's God, I don't, I think probably hangs out with butterflies in the Care Bears. Yeah, I, I think he, the, Vince Antonucci's God sounds like he's the creator of the, um, of My Little Pony. It doesn't sound anything like the biblical God at all. Let's continue. When we had our first child, I had never changed a baby in my life. I'm pretty sure I'd never held a baby my entire life. And all of a sudden, we had this baby. Now, we took a class before we actually gave birth. And I didn't actually give birth. My wife did. But I was there. But um, we took this class, and they taught you how to put a diaper on. But it is a different story when you got, like, a kicking, squirting baby in front of you. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the worst changing experience I ever had in my life, and I will never forget it, happened, I, I think it was, like, two or three months into this baby's life life and my wife was out and uh my baby my son had what we call a blowout now just to make sure we have a common definition let me explain a blowout is when a baby goes number two okay i want to remind you all this is the christmas eve sermon this was preached on christmas eve at a church No biblical text except for Zephaniah 3.17 at this point. Is this what you expect when you go to church to hear on, on Christmas Eve? When, when, you, you know, when you decide that you're going to take a little bit of time away from your family or you're going to leave the festivities and take your family and you're going to go to church on Christmas Eve because you recognize that Jesus Christ and his birth is really what Christmas is all about. And without that, it's completely meaningless. And so you dress up, you wear, you put on your Christmassy best clothes, and you take the family, put them into the minivan, and you drive to church, and you sit down, and this is what's being preached to you. Does this even remotely begin to sound like what you would expect to hear from a Christian pastor on Christmas Eve? with such volume and such force that the diaper literally cannot withhold it. And so it 
blows out. We all, we all understand. Okay. And so he had a blowout. And so I have to change him now. And I'm all like, I can do this. I've changed the diaper now. I can handle this. Now, the real trick with a blowout is that there is number two all over the baby's clothes. You have to get the clothes over the head without getting the number two on the head, right? And so I'm working on that, and I'm very carefully trying to get the clothes over the head when all of a sudden my son started to go number one. And I had not put a diaper on him yet. And so not knowing what to do, this is what I did. (laughs) And uh, my hands started to fill up quickly. And pretty soon it's going all over. And I've got one and two all over my clothes. And they're all over his clothes and all over him. And so like three or four minutes later, my wife gets a call. And I said this. I said, here's the situation. There is number one and two all over everything. I am in my underwear. Your son is naked. There is one and two on his clothes, my clothes, the floor. I think there's some on the ceiling. What do I do? You know, changing a baby can be gross, granted. It can be gross. But here's the good part. At least you're in control. Right, You're in the dominant position over the baby. There's no question about that. And I think we like the baby Jesus because of that reason. As a baby, it's like, well, I'm in kind of the control position. I'm in kind of the dominant position over Jesus, right? And I realize that even as a baby, he was still like God, and so maybe he had some special powers, but I still think I could take him. You know what I'm saying? Like, as a baby, me against him, one-on-one, he's there in his swaddling clothes. What could he do? I could take baby Jesus, right? And I think we like the baby because we're in the control seat. We're in the dominant position. Really? So uh, you think you could take the baby Jesus? Good night. Over the baby. The problem is that this baby wants to change you. We- yeah, again, he changes the definition. Yeah, you got to track with it. It's a new definition. He's not saying that Jesus wants to change your diapers. But if you don't track with that, it sounds kind of, because the whole explanation before this had to do with a blowout. Huh. We like to change babies, and we like to be in that position, but this baby wants to change you. You know, the deal is that God is really good at changing people. It's his specialty. He's really good at taking people and their ordinary lives and making them extraordinary. He's really good at taking people's hurts and bringing... Are you hearing this? God's good at taking ordinary lives and making them extraordinary? Is that the gospel? No, not even close. Read the story of the rich man and Lazarus from the gospel of Luke. Okay? The rich man doesn't even have a name, by the way. The rich man, I mean, he had an extraordinary life. He was wealthy. He dressed in purple, ate the best clo- uh, ate the best food. I mean, the guy had great clothes. I mean, great, extraordinary life. And, at, and you know, then there was this guy named Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus was poor, and he was disease-ridden. He had sores all over his body that oozed, and he had dogs coming and licking his sores on his body, and he was so dirt poor that he longed, longed to have just crumbs that fell off the table of the rich man, and he sat outside the gate of the home of the rich man. 
And then they both die. And then you see that the one who had the extraordinary life didn't even have faith at all. And he goes to hell. And then you see that the one who led the completely unextraordinary, rather depressed, you know, by all standards, failure of a life, he's the one who trusted in Christ. And he, the angels take Lazarus away to heaven. And, the, and, the, and well, the, the rich man, who doesn't even have a name, ends up in the fires of hell. Yeah, what Vince Antonucci here is saying about God wanting to change your life, yes, God does want your life to be changed. And that change comes about through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that's only available to those who have been granted repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. And that life change has to do with what we call the new obedience, the obedience that flows from faith that Paul writes about in in Romans chapter 1. That life change is not a change about making your life extraordinary. It's a life change about going from being proud to being humble, from being arrogant and thinking that you're right and righteous and good to being humble and contrite and repentant and saying, God, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Yeah, this that and see this isn't what this isn't what Vince Antonucci is preaching. He's preaching basically delusions of grandeur. God wants you to be extraordinary. Really? Wow. So God loves me and he wants me to have an extraordinary life? I want that too. Oh, this is such a great God. Too bad he's not real. Healing. He's really good at changing people. But but I suspect that if we were honest today, a lot of us would say that scares me. Like, if I was to give God the control seat in my life, if I was to give him the dominant position in my life and let him have his way with me, that would really scare me because, well, he probably would want to change me. And I'm not sure all the ways he might want to change me. I don't know if I'd like all the things that he would want to do in my life. And so it scares us, right? It scares us, but I want to tell you, it is such good news the fact that this baby grew up and he doesn't want to be changed, he wants to change you, it is really good news. And it's good news because God loves you. He's this loving father and his plans for your life are good. There's a great verse where God says this in, um, in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 29. Okay, now notice, here we go again. This is another completely out of context verse. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now before I let him read it, let's put it in context so that you can hear it properly. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29. I've covered this many times on this program, and this is a completely horrible verse taken out of context, okay? Now, we again, context, 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 okay? Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 1 will tell you who these words were written to. Now, these words were written to the exiles, those who were going into the Babylonian exile that God was using to punish Israel for their idolatry. God said, that's it. I'm done with you guys. I'm executing the punishment clauses of the Mosaic Covenant upon you guys because of your continued idolatry, and I'm sending you into exile in Babylon. 
Okay? So Jeremiah, the prophet, it gets a word of from God to speak to those who would be the surviving elders in exile. This is who this is written to. This is not written to you and me. This is written to them. Okay? Unless you happen to be old enough and to have lived and actually did live and survived the the sacking of Jerusalem by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, were taken into captivity in Babylon, survived the entire 70-year ordeal, came back to Jerusalem. This wasn't written to you. Okay, watch. These are the words that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the letter is from God written by the hand of the prophet Jeremiah, and in the letter itself, it says the, this letter is written to whom? The exiles whom God sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God says. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now that's the verse in context. Notice that the operative verse here is, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. Again, when you put it in context, who is this written to? It's not written to you and I. This is part of a short epistle written by the prophet Jeremiah, given by direct revelation from God himself to the exiles, telling them when they get to, you know, that they're in Babylon, pray for the welfare of the city, marry, Give your daughters in marriage, bear sons, 
and prosper and multiply there in Babylon. And in 70 years, God will come and get them and bring them back because he knows the plans that he has for them. You see, this isn't for you and I. This is for them. This does reveal something of the nature of God and quite a very interesting part of God's nature, his kindness, his mercy, and how even in his wrath, he does not continue to be angry but relents. So that's what this passage tells us about God, but watch what Vince does with it. Verse 11 the Bible says this. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And so God says, listen, I've got plans for your life. You know, I have this vision, this dream of what you could be. That's not what this passage says at all. Notice what he's saying, this passage is saying, is not what this passage says at all when you put it back in context. This man is deceiving. Not only is he blasphemous, he's a flat-out deceiver, tickling, itching ears. He has no proper understanding of God's Word at all or how to handle it. And this is a Christmas Eve sermon to boot. Ugh. And it's good. My, my plan is to get what you have right now, to give you hope. It's good. I'll tell you this. The first 20 years of my life, uh, I did not know God, did not know Jesus. The last 20 years, I have. And uh, these 20 years have been the best 20 years of my life by far. When I first started to get to know... What about the Christians who, both in antiquity and today, who upon confessing Christ as their Lord and Savior, experience the worst years of their life, unending persecution... I mean, beatings, torture, and death. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have to say to them? Oh, this baby Jesus. I was scared about this very idea. I was like, man, I know he's going to want to change things. He's going to want to take things away from me that, that I have or I do. And I, I don't know if I'm cool with that. And, and I'm just not sure what he's going to want to do in my life. But what I have found... What I have found is that God has my best interest in mind. That he loves me more than I love myself. And every single change that he's brought to bear in my life has been for my good. He's changed me so much. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I've learned to, to try to value myself a little bit because I used to not be able to at all. I've learned not to be so harsh with people because I used to be a real jerk. And honestly, there's still a lot in my life that needs to change. You know, I, I need to become more patient. I've got very little I need to let people in my life. I tend to have walls up and not... You need to learn how to read the Bible and properly handle God's Word. Let people get too close to it. And so I still need God to change me. And my suspicion is that you do too. My, my guess is that if you were honest, you'd say, man, there are some things in my life that I, I need to change. I recognize that. I know that. And God wants to change you. He's really good at it. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe... Maybe you're someone who worries all the time. You worry about everything. It consumes you. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life like that? Maybe you've finally... Yeah, see, that's my big problem. I got, you know, do I really want to spend the rest of my life worrying? Hmm. Or, do, or is the biblical question, do you want to spend your eternity in hell? You see, yeah, 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 let's see here. 
spend the rest of my life worrying. Wow, wow. I, I'm so glad that I have some advice that'll help me so that I don't have to spend the rest of my life worrying. Whew. Yeah. I'm so glad about that. I thought that the big problem that the Bible addresses and Christ shed blood on the cross addresses is the wrath of God and us being thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. Yeah, I wonder if there's any worrying in the lake of fire. Hmm. Come to the realization that you are utterly dependent on food or some other substance. Like, like every time things go bad in your life, every time there's stress, you find yourself eating. And, and it's like... Wh- <laughs> oh, that could be completely misconstrued. Hang on, I gotta back that up because that struck me as funny. Hang on a second here. Do you want to be set free from your dependence on food? <laughs> yeah, because, you know... One of the ways you can tell whether or not you're addicted to something is if you need it every day. So if uh, if you be suffering from a food addiction, you know, because you have to have food every day, then uh, don't worry, God will set you free from your dependence upon food. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I heard that. Let's. <laughs> that's not what he meant. I know he's talking about those who are overeating, but he didn't really do a good job of clarifying. But listen again, because it just struck me as funny come to the realization that you are utterly dependent on food or some other substance. Like, like every time things go bad in your life, every time there's stress, you find yourself eating. And, and it's like, wh- why is this what I turn to? Well, you don't... Because you need to eat several times a day. You have to be like that for the rest of your life. Even if you have in the past, it doesn't have to stay that way. Because God is... Ooh, I can't wait to be set free from food. He's really good at changing people. Maybe for you it's a relational thing. Maybe you have relationships with people, or maybe there's this certain person, and it's an important relationship, but the only way that you seem to be able to to deal with each other is through fighting and yelling and arguing. And that needs to change, right? God is really good at changing people, and that is really good news because we need to change. And so listen, and, and I hope you hear and accept this. God loves you just the way you are. Yeah, then why did Jesus die on the cross again? What was that all about? But he loves you too much to leave you that way. Isn't that good news? No. God loves you just the way you are. No, that's not what the Bible really teaches. But he loves you way too much to leave you that way. And so what God wants... This is apparently the gospel of life change. But don't worry, God loves you just the way... Well, listen, hold on a second. If Kind of using your own logic here, Vince, just got a question for you. Kind of the obvious question. If God loves me just the way I am, then why does he need to change me again? Why can't I just stay the way I am? He loves me just the way I am. Why can't I stay this way again, huh? to do is he wants to bring some change to your life and he can do if he wants to change me then he doesn't love me the way i am that's real simple i mean god just wants he's just saying that he loves me so that he can manipulate me you know and change me into something i don't want to be i mean if he truly loves me the way i am then i get to stay the way i am i don't have to change at all do that if you'll let him he can do that because he's really good at changing people and he has a great plan for your life so listen, I realize that for most of us, the reason you come uh, on to a Christmas Eve service is because it's kind of part of the holiday, right? We, we, yeah, because, you know, what part of the service was about the holiday again? 
come because it's part of Christmas is going to church is what you're supposed to do. And maybe- yeah, yeah, but it doesn't sound like the folks who showed up there actually went to church. Maybe it's kind of nice to sing some carols and it kind of gives you a good feeling. But my prayer is that maybe this Christmas will be more than that. That, that maybe this Christmas Eve, instead of it just being, yeah, we went to church and I can check that off my list and it was good, it was fun, it, you know, it was inspiring, that, that maybe this will be the Christmas that for the rest of your life you'll look back and say, that was the day my life started to change. How cool would that be? Seriously, like what if today you made a decision, from now on, I'm not going to just deal with the baby Jesus. Instead... Yeah, because that's the big bane out there. you got a whole bunch of people who came to Christmas Eve service, and they, in reality, have been really just loving, just like Ricky Bobby, the baby Jesus. How cool would it be if, you know, their Jesus actually grew up? Oh, that would be so cool. Can you imagine how cool that would be? Wow, that would be cool. So what? Uh, I'm going to let Jesus sing to me. I'm making a decision. Creepy. Decision tonight that I want to let God's love into my life because I need to be loved and adored. What if you made a decision tonight? From now on, I'm not going to just deal with the baby Jesus. Instead, I'm going to let Jesus change me because I know God loves me just as I am. And I like some things about me, but there are some things that need to change. Again, if God loves you just the way you are, why do you need to change again? Huh? And so it it may scare me a little bit to to give God control, but I'm going to trust that he loves me more than I love me, that he knows better than I do. And so I'm going to let him have his way with me and, and see what kind of changes he can bring in my life as I partner with him in that process. Oh, so, yeah. Where's the big verses about us partnering with God in this process? of changing the things that we really don't need to change because God loves us just the way we are. I mean, if God loves me just the way I am, I don't need to change. I can just stay the way I am. Why would I want to change if God loves me the way I am? What if God doesn't like the changes? Hmm? And that could be really cool. And I realize you didn't come in here to... Yeah, see, isn't that a great reason to, you know, make a decision there on Christmas Eve because you make the decision because that would be really cool. Yeah, man. There's a reason to become a Christian because, you know, that would be really cool. To make any big decisions, and I can't make you, but but my prayer is that today would be a day that this Christmas would be a Christmas that would change your life. How is it possible that this Christmas would change their life? You haven't even really taught God's word. Forever. You know, if if God sent Jesus, and Jesus came just so we could have a nice holiday and exchange gifts and have a nice, warm feeling seeing Christmas girls on Christmas Eve, that's kind of ridiculous, right? If Jesus gave his life for that, there's more to it than that. God sent Jesus. Christmas is all about the fact that God loves you and wants to pour his love into your life. And God loves you and wants to help you to change, become an even better version of you. And that also... That's not the gospel either starts with a decision. Oh, yeah. Where does the Bible say that? Oh, yeah, it doesn't. starts with you making a decision. So I'm going to... No, the Bible doesn't say that. You don't get to choose God. God chooses you. You're... Read John chapter 1. It's not of a human decision. It's not by the will of man. It's by the will of God. I'm going to pray for the, you for that right now. Let's pray. There you go. I'm not going to let him pray for us. So what do you think? I mean, do you feel... wouldn't it be so cool... If after you heard this sermon, 
that you decided that you would never again darken the door of a church with preaching this lame. Wouldn't that be so cool? Wouldn't it be so cool if after hearing this sermon and how completely vapid and banal it was, that you made a decision that you were going to find a church where the pastor actually knew what he was doing. He actually cracked open God's Word and, you know, read entire passages of Scripture and exegeted the passages and taught you the full counsel of the Word of God. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if people stopped going to these seeker-driven churches and they collapsed under the weight of their own debt for their, you know, for their big audience, you know, big-sized audiences and and really expensive television equipment and and really expensive stages and stuff like that? Wouldn't it be really cool if people just said, "I'm out of here. I'm going to go to a church where the pastor actually preaches the word of God," and as a result of it, the mega churches in mass went into foreclosure during the year 2011. I think that would be just really, really cool. Don't you? I sure do. Wouldn't it be really cool if people realized, you know what, I'm not hearing the gospel, I'm not hearing God's word, and I'm not hearing sound biblical doctrine being preached by these seeker-driven Rick Warren Perry Noble wannabes. And as a result of it, we ju- that you dis- they in mass just left to where they left so quickly that you can hear the sucking sound inside of the... Uh, seeker-driven auditoriums, you know, as people left, you know, so quickly. It sounded like a vacuum cleaner, and 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 as a result of it, they weren't able to pay their bills, and they went bankrupt, and they went away. And these, these bad preachers who don't know what they're doing, who have no business preaching, even to a mule, would then realize that they've got to get a real job, and they actually have to work for a living doing something that, that well, requires them to be good at it rather than collecting a paycheck, starving God's sheep to death with complete, vapid silliness. I think that would be so cool. We can hope. After all, it is New Year's Eve. And, you know, one of the themes of the Secret Driven Guys is that God wants your dreams to come true. And so I'm going to go find tonight on this New Year's Eve, I'm going to go find a wishing star and and wish my dreams into existence and do some vision casting in order that my dreams and visions for the church might come to pass and all these seeker-driven drivel types, well, they'll dry up like chaff and blow away in the wind. (laughs) That's my dream. (laughs) I hope that's the big plan that God has for my life, that I can help usher that reality into existence. Ah, yes, we can just dream. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio uh, You know, over the course of this year, or for those of you who've been listening for a few years now. I, I just want to take a moment to thank you. I, I really, truly derive a lot of joy from being able to serve you week in and week out here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. I, I got to tell you, it, this is absolutely the best job that I've ever had in my life. It's the hardest job that I've had. It's the most challenging job. And also at the same time, it is the most rewarding. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to come to the microphone day in and day out, open up God's word, preach the gospel to you, and find ways to make you laugh, to make you cry, and to make you go, aha, now I understand what that passage means. Now I understand what Christ has done for me. This 
is a supreme joy and an honor to be able to serve you. And I want to thank you for everything that you've done for us in helping to keep us afloat financially so that we can keep doing what we're doing. Again, thank you very much. I'm not going to close off the year by begging for money, so don't worry, I'm not going to do it, but you know that we need it. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until next year, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>